Hello, this is Rachel Bevin from Oncology News Australia, proud producers of the Oncology Journal Club. This week, we have another great episode for you in our usual format. Hans Prennan gets us started by talking us through the connection between the gut microbiome and immune checkpoint inhibitors. He continues the theme of the microbiome in his quick bites too. Eva Segalov has a mega paper this week, so big in fact that you'll hear the rest of her analysis of it in our next episode. She tackles our friend Bishal Gayawali's paper addressing biases in study design that distort the appraisal of clinical benefit and the ESMO magnitude of clinical benefit scale. It's fascinating stuff. Then Craig Underhill gives us his thoughts on five-year outcomes with Pembro versus chemo for metastatic non-small cell lung cancer. Today's quick bites are as diverse as ever, covering highlights from the AACR ASM, faecal transplants for patients with cachexia, the Taper trial, controversies in thoracic oncology, the costs of fear of cancer recurrence, and much more. And it wouldn't be the OJC without something quirky too. This week won't disappoint you as we have not one but two amazing papers of the week, including one that asks if Beethoven's death was a result of medical malpractice. I hope you enjoy today's entertaining and informative episode. As ever, the links to all the papers discussed today are available in the notes on our website. And if you'd like to be notified when new podcast episodes are released and to receive a free update each week covering all the latest breaking oncology news and a few quirky articles too, then why not sign up to our weekly publication, The Oncology Newsletter, on oncologynews.com.au. It's free and it's a great way to support the OJC. This is Rachel Babin and this is The Oncology Podcast. G'day, g'day, g'day. I can't believe how many of these OJC podcasts we've done. And somebody's listening and they ask for more. So here we are. We've done some great specials, but this is another regular episode with regular old hands. Hi, Eva. And regular old Craig. Thanks, young Eva. It's a pleasure to have you with us. No, I love the regular episodes, don't you? We just pick whatever we think has been really impactful in the recent literature and we have a chat about it. Rightio. So, Hans, what have you got for us, please? So, actually, I attended the uh, virtual ACR meeting and there was a forum discussion on April 12th, which uh, caught my eyes. And I want to tell you something about it because it was about the relationship between gut microbiota and the response of immune checkpoint inhibitors. And it was quite an interesting session because they discussed, let's say, three different parts. The first part was a discussion about the predictive role of, and let me try to pronounce the name of that bacterium, it's called Acromantia mucinifila. And this bacterium was actually predictive for response and resistance to PD-1 blockade in non-small cell lung cancers. So this is a bacterium that is mucin degrading, so it eats mucin, and we think it might be associated with diabetes, with obesity, inflammation. 
And there has been a prospective study done in more than 300 patients with non-small cell lung cancer, of which 50% were positive for this bacterium. And they found that responders harbored 65% of this bacterium, while in patients with stable disease or progressive disease, 48% were positive. So it's not a black and white finding, but there was some kind of relation between this bacterium and response. Also, the survival was 19 months in the positive ones versus 11 in the bacteria-negative patients. Then what they also did in another publication was in mice, they gave boosting levels of this Acromantia mucinifila, and it seems to also boost the response to IO. And this was a publication in Science in 2018. So we guess it's promising, but it doesn't tell us everything. The second part of the discussion was about the fecal microbiota transplantation. So it makes sense that you would change your microbiome, maybe to overcome resistance to anti-PD-1. And actually, they tried this out in metastatic melanoma, because already, as you know, several publications have demonstrated strong correlations between the composition of the microbiome and response to anti-PD-1. And there was a study performed by a group from Israel and also published very recently in Science in February 2021. And they used donors from metastatic melanoma and that had a durable, complete response to anti-PD-1. So they used their stools and then they did fecal microbiota transplants to recipients with also metastatic melanoma, which has progressive disease on anti-PD-1. So I think it's a very cool uh, story. And after this transplantation, they reintroduced the anti-PD-1. They only did it in 10 patients, so it's very early data. But it showed very meaningful responses in three patients, and that all got stools from donor one. So they used two donors, donor one and donor two. And it seems that only donor one was doing the trick. And so they have no clear explanation for this. But this trial will continue in, I think, about 40 patients that they will do it and using five new donors. And they will also include non-small cell lung cancer in the future, so not only melanoma. So I think it's something to, to look at in the coming months, years. So, Hans, yes. did they get a prize for having the best shit number <laughs> one? That's a very good question, Eva. Yeah. It's like the technical term, Eva. <laughs> it is. For the audience, can you explain how they actually take the stool and transplant it? I guess what they do, what they usually do with fecal transplant is that they ask for a stool uh, sample from the patients that where they want to take it from. And then they actually uh, yeah, do some kind of preparation and then they put it back by endoscopy. Uh, they place it again within the colon of the recipients. Okay, so the final discussion was about whether there is a consensus on whether the bacterium signature is associated with immune checkpoint blockade efficacy. So everybody thinks that the signature of your bacterium is important. But the conclusion was that this is not really the case. It seems that there is more of kind of functional convergence of these microbial activities. So which bacteria go together, it's more important than a specific species. So I think there's still a lot of research that has to be done in this field, but it looks really promising. What I find hard to understand is that the microbiota change so dramatically with diet or antibiotics. So 
you know, if you're getting it from donor one, do you have all of that at one time and then store it and give it to, or do you take continual samples? I don't think any of this is worked out yet. No, I think we don't know. And it seems that it's really the relation between all these bacteria that uh, plays a role. But as you say, it's very fluctuating. As soon as you change your eating habits in two weeks, your complete microbiome has changed. Imagine we could have the McDonald's microbiome. Craig will have the fine dining microbiome. And then you just buy it in the shop. Yep. Fantastic. Look, it's such a hot topic and I think we've avoided this issue of diet for so long. We've just sort of reverted to good healthy diet, but we may in fact be prescribing specific diets for IO receiving patients in the future. Fully agree. So Eva, what have you got for us this week? Well, I've got a paper that I think really is one of the best papers I've read for a very long time. And it's by our friend Bish, who we interviewed on here in our lung cancer, post-world lung special. And he's a bit of a rock star, I think, of uh, certainly of Twitter. He works in the group at Queen's University, really looking at value-based healthcare, amongst other things. So this was published in Annals. And it's called Biases in Study Design, Implementation and Data Analysis that Distort the Appraisal of Clinical Benefit and the ESMO Magnitude of Clinical Benefit Scale Scoring. So it's really a manifesto on how to do a good trial wrapped up in commentary about how that impacts the magnitude of clinical benefit scale. So Anyone who reads trial results and wonders how it should impact on their practice really should read this paper. And there's a very good table, table one, that lists the eight necessary preconditions for a valid study. Now, if you don't really have a lot of familiarity with the ESMO magnitude of clinical benefit scale, you can go all the way back to OJC Podcast 6, where we presented some information about this. And basically, this scale was first published in 2015. It had a revision in 2017, but this paper was really looking at what the next version should adapt based on really looking at whether this scale is serving its purposes. So what they did was they looked at the Helsinki guidelines for ethics in human research, FDA, EMA, various guidelines, and they looked at the veracity of the ESMO magnitude of clinical benefit scores. And what they came up with was seven shortcomings in their scoring system that really highlight things that they think they should take into account in future to really assess a trial and the value of the information that comes from the trial. So there were six issues in design, and I'm going to walk you through them. The first was trials that have a substandard control arm, and they used as an illustrative case the NEMO study which had both treatment-naive or pre-treated patients with advanced NRAS-mutated melanoma. 
and these patients were randomised to binimetinib or decarbazine. Now, what happened was 79% of the participants were treatment naive. So they got decarbazine in the control arm. And already at the time, we knew that was inferior to IPI, ipilimumab immunotherapy plus decarbazine. And so you've got a trial that looks more positive because your control arm was not the current standard of care. And that needs to be figured in this magnitude of clinical benefit scale. The second issue was the predictive reliability of surrogate endpoints. Now, a surrogate is only as good as its predictive value for the true clinical benefit of the true endpoint. And the two endpoints for all trials that are of ultimate importance are longer survival or improved quality of life. Now, we've had a lot of information over the years about using DFS, disease-free survival, as a surrogate for overall survival, particularly in adjuvant therapy studies. And it's of variable predictive reliability. They, in this paper, say at best characterized as moderate. Even within the same tumor type, it might be different. For example, DFS is a better surrogate for OS in HER2-positive breast cancer than other subtypes. So in the draft version that people are looking at for version two of the ESMO clinical benefit scale, they will adapt for the veracity of whichever surrogate endpoint is used. Now, the third issue in design was crossover. Did you know, Hans, that there are two sorts of crossover, appropriate or desirable crossover? Oh, no, I didn't. Good. And that's where really you're looking at whether a drug used earlier is better than later. Because if you have a control arm that doesn't get the drug but then delivers that drug later due to crossover, it becomes a sequence or a timing question. And if you don't incorporate the crossover, the people on that arm of that study will miss out on that drug. And if you already know it works in later lines and you do a trial earlier but don't allow crossover, you will disadvantage the people who don't get that. So that's called desirable or appropriate crossover. Now, of course, the opposite of that is undesirable crossover. And that's where you've got crossover that allows people to get the medication or the intervention where it's not actually been proven. And that can impact on the overall survival. And it can also cause harm because it can delay people getting therapy that is of proven value in that later time. So that sort of crossover is discouraged by the FDA and EMA. Now, there's some really interesting examples. Failure to incorporate appropriate crossover, abiaterone, the COUAA 302 trial showed that it was standard of care for chemo-naive metastatic castration-resistant prostate cancer. And then a couple of years later, there was the latitude trial. And in that study, 
only 11% of patients on placebo received abiaterone when they progressed to castrate-resistant prostate cancer. So the trial showed a substantial overall survival benefit and therefore it gets a high ESMO magnitude of clinical benefit score of four. But actually, because of lack of crossover, we don't know whether using the abiraterone earlier while the tumour is castrate sensitive is better than using it later when the tumour is castrate resistant. And also the control arm patients were potentially harmed by not receiving a proven post-progression therapy. So incorporation of undesirable crossover, there's a nice example, the IMPACT trial, which was an autologous dendritic cell therapeutic vaccine, the Cipolucil T, up against placebo. Patients who progressed on placebo were allowed to use their frozen version of the vaccine even though it was not efficacious. Now, out of the trial, those patients would have gone straight to docetaxel, which we know has survival advantage. And so that really affects the interpretation of the trial. So the paper identifies that the current magnitude of clinical benefit score does not have a mechanism to either indicate or penalise studies with inappropriate or inadequate crossover. Now, this article is so good, there's a whole lot more, and I'm actually going to hold it over to our next episode. So if you're interested in this, tune in for more. It's really worth reading this article. It's a manifesto of good versus bad trials. It sounds super interesting, Eva. So Just one question, because, okay, you can have some comments on trials, but you also know it sometimes takes quite long to make a trial, to get it started, to go through all the regulations. So often your standard treatments is changing. So it's not always the fault of the ones that designed the trial that your standard arm is not good, for example. No, absolutely. They're very careful here to use examples where there was a standard at the time the trial maybe was not conceive, but certainly when it was initiated. And more and more, we're going to have to, we face this battle of the length of time for regulatory approval to get trials up and running versus the huge influx of knowledge that's coming. We're seeing that now, say, uh, in neoadjuvant rectal trials, aren't we, with the move to total neoadjuvant and how that's going to impact. That's correct. And I think it's something I might discuss in the next podcast. That's a very good idea. All right, Craig, I've hogged the microphone. You're allowed to make a rude comment. Over to you. I'm not touching that, Eva. So I have a paper in lung cancer. It's called Five-Year Outcomes with Pembrolizumab versus Chemotherapy for Metastatic Non-Small Cell Lung Cancer with a PDL tumor proportion score of 50%. So this is the five-year follow-up from the keynote 024 study. This was published in the JCO on the 19th of April 2021. So, you know, it's we've talked a lot on the podcast about the changes in lung cancer and really we're living through a bit of a revolution. But this is looking at five-year outcomes for patients with metastatic lung cancer. So, you know, historically that's been a very low rate. 
So in this study, patients who received chemotherapy, the median overall survival was 13.4 months. And for those who received pembrolizumab alone in this PDL high population was 26.3 months. But the interesting data in this population of treated for up to two years of pembrolizumab is the five-year overall survival rate was 16% for chemotherapy, but in the pembrolizumab group, it was 32%. I'm going to do an interpretive dance now to um, explain the, the curves because no one's watching. But turn your camera off. But you can see the sort of suggestion of a plateau on the curve. So there's still patients relapsing out late, but, you know, there's a definite plateau. We see in melanoma studies of five-year survival, definite you know, plateau and probably people are cured, but we're still seeing late relapses in lung, but very clear separation in the curve. So in this population, pedial high, you know, to expect that at five years, a third of the patients were alive is, you know, quite extraordinary. So we want to obviously push that up to much higher than a third, but it's worth people having a look at this paper, especially if they treat lung cancer patients. Hans wants to push it up to a third. But Craig, how long did people receive the IO for on the on the original melanoma trials? Because no one had really any concept it would work so well. Patients were treated for two or three years. As, as I said, this was up to two years. So, so now most guidelines recommend that we treat beyond two years in the absence of any clear evidence. So in the real world, we would keep going until toxicity or relapse. Interestingly, I've had some patients who've gone beyond two years and they have progressed in that between two and three years. So we're allowed with some of the IO drugs to continue beyond two years in the prescribing environment in Australia. So most of the guidelines would suggest that you keep going. But in this, a lot of the studies that were specified two years treatment, this was two years treatment. So there's still an ongoing effect way beyond that. But interestingly, about a third of the patients relapsed after the two years. Yeah, and I, I guess the question will be stop and restart at relapse. Does that impact overall survival? Can you give people a break? Because it's a long time to be on treatment. It is, and with this very limited data, there's a study where people were stopped after one year rather than after two, and that showed that most people relapsed and only, I think it was 50% of them actually responded a second time. So you can lose the response after being, you know, responding initially, stopping, and then on rechallenge, not everyone has a second response. It could be different between lung and melanoma and maybe colon, for example. So I think it's tumor dependent. Exactly. I don't think lung cancer is melanoma or renal cancer, the traditional kind of immune immunogenic tumors. And I think, you know, it's going to take cooperative group studies to really answer these kind of questions. You reckon? You reckon the farmer won't be interested? I don't know. I'm not going to touch that. We'll, we'll call our mate Steve Vogel and ask him that. Yeah. Hey, we need Steve to ring up soon. We do. We miss you, Steve. Or Merv, please ring. Okay, fantastic. So, Hans, you've got quick bites. I just want to tell you, Hans, it's caught your eye. 
not caught your eyes. Okay, so it's it's only one eye that is, can be caught, not two at the same time then. Yeah, that's right. How's your Flemish, Eva? I'm trying to make this as educational as possible. Yeah, indeed. I think this podcast is so educational for me. So uh, my English has improved so much. Maybe you have to compare with podcast number one versus number 34. That's a good idea. We might have to play a snippet of number one. So what's your short bite for us? Yeah, so actually I try to stay in the same team. So I also chose something on fecal microbiota. So this is a short bite published by a group from Amsterdam in the Clinical Cancer Research, April 2021. And it's called Fecal Microbiota Transplantation from Overweight or Obese Donors in Cachectic Patients with GI Cancer. So what they did is actually a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled phase 3 study. And the idea was the following. So cachexia is associated with poor survival, as you know, in cancer patients and also influenced by the gut. And they used healthy, obese donors, used the stools from them, and then gave them to GI cancers treated with chemo. And they want to have an effect on cachexia. But the conclusion was there was no real effect on cachexia, but they claimed that there might be a difference in disease control rate and survival. Of course, be careful. It was a very small group of patients, only 24 patients, but maybe it makes sense to do this also in a larger cohort. I thought you were going to say they did a fat transplant, but they did the fecal transplant. Just to clarify, Hansa didn't work. No, actually, they didn't uh, see any influence on cachexia, and I think the reason is that it's multifactorial. It's not only related with your gut, but I think the idea is nice. So thank God for that. Can you imagine with your cachectic patient saying, I have the fix for you? A fecal transplant? I don't think so. So I think it was a phase two study, not a phase three study. No, it, it's a phase two study, double blind, placebo controlled, yeah. And the total number of patients? 24. Yep. But, you know, they're really not easy studies to do and it's fantastic to see these things being looked at to crack cachexia. Wow, that would be uh, really a big one. It's so tough. And that gives me a good idea. We should do a special on cancer cachexia. Oh, that's maybe an interesting topic indeed. One for you, Hans. All right. So, Craig, your quick bites. I have a few, Eva. One is another pembrolizumab study, this time in patients with metastatic breast cancer with a higher new mutational burden. It's from a study called the TAPER study, targeted agent profiling utilization registry study. So this was a basket of patients with heavily pretreated metastatic breast cancer who were selected on the basis of high tumor mutational burden and it showed a reasonable response rate in the phase to 21% and overall survival of 30 weeks. So a signal that this may be a way to select out patients who with breast cancer who could be treated with immunotherapy. And what was the definition of high TMB? Because usually it's 10 or sometimes it's 14. That's why it's important. Yeah. 9 to 37. So is that high, Hans? Usually it's above 10. Usually it's above 10, but at least sometimes it's above 14. That's why I was asking. It is a real issue that there is no standard definition of high TMB. And, you know, do we think people don't look at curves and then decide where they're going to call high? 
uh, not predefined. You know, is it an easily kind of replicable methodology for testing and et cetera? So it's not something that we use a lot. And also emerging data that TMB by itself is not predictive. We have to cover those papers. Okay. The other quick bites was one that's a new series from the Journal of Thoracic Oncology called Controversies in Thoracic Oncology. So in a page or two, they summarise the recent progress in non-small cell lung cancer, point out all of the new drugs to the various targets, ALK, BRAF V600E, EGFR, MET, Exxon 14, NTRK, RET, ROS1, HER2 and NRG, not the POP group, but the molecular mutation. But in the patients with no sensitizing driving mutation, the current state of play is really unclear. And so, Eva, this was a nice kind of like follow-on from what you just did in your long paper. So they said that the problem is that this field in advanced lung cancer has been plagued by studies continuing with old inferior reference arms after studies are published. So, you know, a study set up and recruiting, results are published from one study, the reference arm isn't changed. So what's ended up happening is that regardless of PDL one status, it's really unclear what is the standard therapy. Is it single agent IO for high PDL ones Is it a combination of single agent IO with chemo? Is it chemo plus bevacizumide plus IO? Is it ipinevo? Is it ipinevo chemo? Same for the PDL one one for forty nine, and for the PDL one low, you wouldn't use single agent IO, but you would all the other combinations are again acceptable standards. So it's an introduction to a series they're going to do called controversies in thoracic oncology, and guess what they picked as their first controversy? Our old favourite. Adora. Adora. So we still haven't found what we're looking for because there was so there was two papers. One saying osimertinib is the standard of care for the edge of a therapy of stage one to three A EGFR mutant on small cell lung cancer, and the other saying it should not be the standard of care. So we still haven't found what we're looking for. So if anyone is still intrigued by the Adura controversy, they can read about it in these papers. Click on the link. Fantastic. And that's why dummies like Hans and I do colorectal cancer because we're still with 5-FU. We don't have all those controversies. That's exactly right. And then the last one is a review on the neurological complications of immune checkpoint inhibitors in lung cancer again published in the journal Thoracic Oncology. So although this was done in thoracic malignancies, it has some learnings for all cancers on basically being aware of the neurological complications, thinking about it in patients before they start treatment to ensure they don't have any neurological problems that could be a paraneoplastic phenomena, and then an approach to management. So for the neurological complications, it's often using some IVIG or oral steroids, but if patients are refractory, there's some interesting data evidence that the B-cell inhibitors such as rituximab may play a role. So I don't think we use that in a lot of other IO 
complications of checkpoint inhibitors, but for the neurological inhibition where it's possibly the production of autoantibodies, which you can look for in the plasma and the CSF, if they're present, then a B-cell inhibitor such as rituximab, which you would, you guys wouldn't know what that was if you don't treat lymphoma, but that's a B-cell inhibitor. Vitamin R. That could be of use. So anyway, a good review. So if you have, regardless of the cancer you treat, if you have a patient with neurological complications, there's a, there's a couple of really good tables setting out the approach and how to manage them. So Eva, what are your quick bites for this week? Well, thanks, Hans. The first one is a paper from the University of Sydney group entitled A Systematic Review of Fear of Cancer Recurrence Related Healthcare Use and Intervention Cost Effectiveness. So this is looking at the economic impact of fear of cancer recurrence. But I thought it's an interesting topic and we haven't really talked much about it. There are four key features of fear of cancer recurrence, high levels of preoccupation, high levels of worry, persistence, and hypervigilance to body systems. And there are some good screening tools. Now, this is a problem for almost 50% of cancer survivors, even though amongst those groups their recurrence rates, early breast cancer, early prostate cancer, only around 10 to 15%. And it impacts not only psychological distress and quality of life, but healthcare resource usage. So this is a, a really interesting review in a good topic and says we need to pay attention to this area. So my second short bite is your favourite drug, Craig, published in the New England Journal, Sasituzumab govotecan in metastatic triple negative breast cancer. We have covered this previously in our post-San Antonio, but this is the full publication, phase three, open label, randomized trial, 529 patients randomized either to SACSI or single-agent chemotherapy Progression-free survival median, 5.6 months versus 1.7. Hazard ratio for progression or death, 0.41 with a 95% CI, 0.32 to 0.52. And some grade three and four adverse events, as you'd expect, slightly higher in the SACSI arm. But that is now a mainstream agent with the publication of this in metastatic triple negative breast cancer. So my final short bite was published in Journal of Clinical Oncology in March entitled Predicting Outcomes in Men with Metastatic Non-Seminomatous Germ Cell Tumors, results from the International Germ Cell Cancer Collaborative Group. Now they've been publishing on this for many years. The original score came from patients treated between 1975 and 1990. So they've now looked at a more contemporary cohort and adjusted the scale to add age and lung 
metastases as additional adverse prognostic factor, and they've unified the cutoff of LDH to a single cutoff. There's a very important web-based calculator that anyone who deals with these patients should have on their phone to use because this score directly informs what type of therapy the patients should receive. No, Eva, sorry. I've got a new favourite drug. Oh, what is it? Craig, you have an amazing article. What did you read? It's called Tebentafusp. That sounds Sherman. Did you see anything from the AACR? So this was a new, was heralded as a practice changer in metastatic uveal melanoma. So this was a study randomised in patients between chemo or IPI or Pembro or Tebentafusp. T-E-B-E-N-T-A-F-U-S-P. So they could have that or the investigator's choice of the other drugs. The overall survival was significantly longer for patients who received Tebentafusp. So it was being heralded as a new standard for this very rare and really very difficult to treat type of melanoma. So click on the link. Hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. You think you're so smart. What's its mechanism Uh of action? Well, in fact, it redirects T cells to kill GP100 expressing tumor cells. Oh, that's pretty good. We didn't even rehearse that. I'm impressed. <laughs> and the other little snippet from the ACR was using Nevo upfront as a neoadjuvant treatment, patients with resectable cancer, and a signal that the pathological complete response rate much higher, 24% versus 2% when added to chemotherapy. But that's maybe not such a surprise. That's lung cancer. That's right. And that'll need further trials, really, randomized phase three trials to tease out. You know, everything's going to neoadjuvant, isn't it? Yep. So let's add a final segment. Eva, do you have an amazing article of the week? Well, let me bang on on my usual topic. So this is called The Unequal Impact of Parenthood in Academia. And it was recently published in Science Advances. Now, for a long time, we've known that men typically publish more papers than women. And this was a very detailed mathematical modeling and based on on lots of data. And they wanted to look at the productivity gap between early career faculty who became parents and those who didn't, and then see if there was a difference between men and women. So there were lower rates of children amongst female versus male academics and women without children produce on average around 87 to 95% of the total number of papers than men without children. But then if you look at the people who have children, the short-term impact is primarily on women, not men. And so There's other confounders like women, once they have children, may well leave academia and that is reflected by the lower rate of females at higher ranking at research-intensive universities. So it's good to see some attention being paid to this because then there can be some strategies to mitigate against this. Thank you for listening. I have a much more amazing article than that, and it's from the Vienna Medizinische Wochenschrift. Hans, how did I say this? Pronounce that okay? It's a medical journal in Vienna. And did 
Beethoven die of medical malpractice? Oh, that is a good one. They took two different strands of hair taken from Beethoven's head after death and examined them for heavy metals using scanning electron microscopy and laser ablation inductively coupled plasma mass spectroscopy and demonstrated high lead levels, 100 times normal. Lead was used as a treatment for pneumonia. Basically, it was postulated that in treating his pneumonia, he was overtreated and then died of liver failure. So it was a case of malpractice. Da 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 da. <laughs> so there you are. Fascinating. You can see again the lesson is you could get pretty much anything published. Da 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 da. We should just go into the stupid paper podcast. Forget OJC. So, Eva, do you have a Twitter account of the week? I do, actually. It's my good friend, our good friend, Dr. Tim Clay, at Dr. T. Clay. Tim is a great tweeter, really worth following him, has all the updated information. And just the other day, he tweeted about the upcoming ASCO plenary and analysed or put a list of all the papers and got lots of responses, including people who had read the Financial Times and knew the outcomes of some of these. So shall I go through them? Yes, that could be our investor update. Which ones were positive, Eva? Okay. So late breaking abstract one, the Olympia trial, phase three, multicenter RCT, adjuvant olaparib after adjuvant or neoadjuvant chemotherapy in patients with germline BRCA1 and 2 mutations and high-risk HER2-positive early breast cancer. Now, I'm not going to tell you which ones are positive till the end for our investor update. LBA2 is Jupiter O2, randomized double-blind phase 3 study of toripalumab or placebo plus gemcitabine and cisplatin as first-line treatment for recurrent or metastatic nasopharyngeal carcinoma. LBA3, adjuvant chemotherapy, following chemo radiation for primary treatment for locally advanced cervical cancer compared to chemo radiation alone. That's the randomized phase 3 outback trial led by ANSGOG presenting at ASCO in the plenary first author, Linda Maleshkin. She's a good mate of yours. Congratulations, Linda, for that. That's stunning. Fantastic. Late-breaking abstract four is the phase three study of lutetium 117 PSMA 617, the vision study, patients with metastatic castrate-resistant prostate cancer. We've discussed that these results were imminent with our good friend, Dr. Michael Hoffman, when he discussed his phase two PSMA ANZUP trial uh, recently. And late-breaking abstract five, Pembro versus placebo as post-nephrectomy adjuvant therapy for patients with renal cell carcinoma, randomized double-blind phase three keynote 564 study. Craig, is, are any of those of interest to you? Yes, they are, Eve. of course. All of them are. But which ones were positive? Three of them. 
So I'm going to quiz. Let's quiz hands. Which ones do you reckon are positive? I'll go through them. So Olympia, the adjuvant olaparib. The only I'm pretty sure is the one in renal cancer. No, three of them are positive. I'm guessing one. So I think the one in renal cancer. So maybe you have to pick the, the other ones now. Oh, no, come on. It doesn't work like that. Yes or no, Olympia, adjuvant, olaparib? I think yes. I think yes. Yes, correct, correct. Yes or no, toripalamib in nasopharyngeal cancer? Yes. I think it's a no. Well, we haven't heard of it being positive, so it's probably not positive. You know, we don't want to say that. We're just saying which ones have been announced in the financial press as positive. Okay, the Outback trial, the cervix cancer. Well, we haven't heard about that in the financial. So we won't say negative. We'll say unknown. What about the vision trial, lutetium PSMA? That one is positive, I guess. Positive on press release. And then finally, Keynote 564, adjuvant Pembro, post-nephrectomy. That should be positive. That's been positive in a press release. So, again, we're not saying the others are not positive. We're saying we have no information, but three of them have positive press releases. So a very exciting ASCO coming back up. Uh, hands, I don't see colorectal cancer there. There's nasopharyngeal cancer in the plenary. I don't see GI at all, so it's not only colon. It seems not GI this time. That's already three years in a row. Yeah. We're so cool. The GI oral session looked to be okay. So anyway, we'll see. But we look forward to ASCO. Fantastic. And our ASCO special. Who are we going to get on? Can you believe it's 12 months ago? Even when you were talking about the ESMO benefit scale? Yeah. I remembered when listening back to that podcast and what I was doing, I was pruning our orchard. We've got a little orchard with about a dozen fruit trees on our little property. And um, I listened to that while pruning on a sunny day in winter last year. So it's 12 months nearly since. And in lockdown too. Yeah, there you go. Well, it's been fantastic having another regular fun episode of the Oncology Journal Club. Watch out for our special episodes and we'll see you real soon, as they say in America. Bye for now. Thanks, everybody. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Oncology Podcast. If you enjoyed today's edition and would like to subscribe, head over to our website, oncologynews.com.au, and sign up to our newsletter. Thanks for listening.